here we are, the first Sunday of the year. Hard to believe it's 2024. That just doesn't even seem right. Every, every year we advance it just like, that's like science fiction kind of numbers. You know, we don't, don't really feel comfortable in 2024. And yet, here we are, our, our first Sunday of the month and the first Sunday of the year. And uh, those of you who have been with us for some time know that we set aside the first Sunday, Sunday of the month to celebrate um, what we call the Remembrance Celebration communion the eucharist the lord's supper depending on your your background you may refer to it in any of those ways and they're all equally valid they have different meanings uh, but they all point to that that sacred ceremony that uh, jesus instituted for the church that looks back to the passover and for us uh, we're able to see the cross in the midst of that we're able to see christ in that uh, that passover celebration so as we, uh, as we come to this new year and as we come to this special Sunday, um, I'm thinking of New Year's resolutions. It's my first, uh, my first sermon for the new year, our first service for the new year. And even though it's uh, a week after, it's kind of weird when, it, when the holiday is at the, the previous week. But as we get here, I'm thinking of New Year's resolutions. And, and New Year's resolutions have become something of, uh, I guess, a punchline in our day, maybe Maybe especially in church. You've probably heard me make a lot of cracks about New Year's resolutions over the years. Um, we've become so accustomed to breaking our so-called resolutions that we generally uh, you know, tend to not take them seriously at all. It's like the promises of so many politicians. We just expect and accept that they're going to be broken. But that doesn't mean that they're unimportant. Or that New Year's resolutions are a bad concept, a bad idea. Over the course of our year, in everyday life, it's easy, it's even normal, if you will, to, to lose sight of what we had determined to be our values, our priorities, our goals. We tend to drift from our intentions and plans over time. And so having this new year is sort of a, a, a built-in, as we turn the page of the calendar, or, or your phone flips over, whatever it is, as we move into this new marking of time, it's an opportunity for us to look back and to remember what we once knew but forgot along the way or drifted away from. It kind of became less important outside of our focus. The same thing is true for us spiritually. It's easy for us to drift away over time. We all do it. It, it, it just happens to us. For a variety of reasons. We're inundated with the world, and so worldly thinking presses in on us. We get overcome by our circumstances, and fear and anxiety and frustration can press in on us. Dennis, uh, as he read from, uh, uh, from Psalm 77 to start us out this morning, saw the psalmist in that setting. What is going on? Why is this so hard why is it so wrong and yet did god really forget me forever of course not it's a rhetorical question how do i find my hope by remembering what god has done in the past and so we find a similar passage today in second kings chapter 23 you can go ahead and turn there um, in second kings chapter 23 it's a little weird for me not preaching in a series, so this is a one-off sermon for us. 
that's only loosely tied to last week and next week. But as we come to this place, the people of God, Israel, have become apostate. The, uh, as we see the nation divided into two nations, so that the northern uh, nation of Israel kept the name, they've already been exiled by God. God's already dealt with their apostasy, their falling away. Now the southern kingdom, the, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin that, that compose that, that uh, or comprise that southern kingdom, now they have fallen so far for so long that God is going to exile them as well. And in the midst of all the bad kings of Israel and the bad priests of Israel and the bad people of Israel, as they had drifted from the covenant promises they had with their God, God brings a new king, a good king. We're going to be reading there. I'll, I'll read uh, just the first uh, three verses, really. But I would invite you to stand, if you're able, out of reverence for God's word as we read these verses. We'll be working through the first 28 verses of the chapter. Uh, but as we read together, we'll just read the first three. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which, he, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep His commands, regulations, and decrees with all His heart and all His soul, thus, continue, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. This is the Word of God, read in your hearing. Receive it in faith. Let's pray. Father God, as we open Your Word today, as we see these... Uh, these activities taking place, the change of heart, the change of direction, the change of action in Josiah and the people. Lord, I pray that you would move in us, that you would change our thinking, our direction, our action, that we might remember your goodness, that we might renew our covenant commitments to you. Lord, clear away from us anything that might distract or deceive or discourage Help us to be able in this moment as we're gathered together to hear from you, to hear your voice, your word. Not the word of some human preacher, but your divinely inspired revelation from the pages of the book you've given us. Father, transform us today that we might be more like your son. We pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so as we see this uh, this section of scripture Josiah came in a as the child king he was just eight years old when he was made king and by this time now he's older he's been king for a while and as he had restored some of the uh, some of the disrepair of the temple uh, and and had the people bring in their money and, and built storerooms to be able to uh, fill the temple treasuries. As he did this, 
Hilkiah the priest came to him and said, Hey, uh, we found the book in the temple. We found the book of the law, the book of the covenant with God. And Hosea, uh, I'm sorry, Josiah read it. And as he read it, he tore his clothes. This is chapter 22. He tore his clothes because he was overcome with the realization that we are so far adrift from what God has called us to be as His people. That He wept and He mourned and He grieved and He repented on His own behalf as well as on behalf of the people. Then He gathers them, as we see here in chapter 23, and He gets all the people together and He reads the king. Now this is not what we're used to in in our government necessarily. But the king gathers them and reads the word of God to them. He goes through the law and the covenant so that they could know what it is that God expects of them. What is God like? And what is their plight as sinners, if you will, in the hands of an angry God? And as he reads this, it changes him, it changes them, and God is pleased with Josiah. However, the the fate of the nation is already set. God has already sealed this punishment and said, I'm going to take you out so you don't have to experience this because you, not the nation, but you personally have been faithful and sought me. I'll take you home. You'll be gathered to your fathers. and You won't go through all of the horrors of the exile that will come. And he does. But in the meantime, there's a, there's a renewing of this covenant fellowship with God. Understand, God has never broken his covenant. Let me say that again because I, I, I want us to make sure we get it, Right? The people broke the covenant over and over and over and over again for generations, even centuries. God never broke His covenant, ever. God is a promise keeper, always. And so now as He he promised in the beginning, if you will keep my commands, you'll be my people and I will be your God. And if you will reject my commands, then all the curses that fall on the nations will fall on you. And so this is where they find themselves. As Josiah brings out the word, they are realizing, he first, the people together, realizing that God, the God, has made a way for them all the way from, from Egypt, through, out of that slavery, through the wilderness, to the period of the judges when they fell away again, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes, followed their own conscience, their own heart. Such a bad formula, and yet we keep falling prey to it. Follow your heart. Yeah, follow your heart right to hell, right to destruction. That's where it goes through the period of the judges, through King Saul, who is a great disappointment, to King David, who is a man after God's own heart, and yet still a great disappointment, through the good kings and the evil kings, God continued to keep His covenant to make a way for them. 
even when they couldn't see it. God never stopped working on their behalf. Maybe we can relate to that. Maybe you have a hard time sometimes seeing God's hand in the midst of your struggle. Maybe you have a hard time seeing Him when the circumstances go the very worst possible way. When the doctor's report comes back exactly opposite of what you prayed for. When the legal decision comes back exactly opposite of what you prayed for. When injustice seems to reign and justice seems to be absent, it's hard to see God. It's hard to feel Him working. So then what do we do? See, when those things happen, our focus gets off of Him. We drift, right? Every new year, we can start out with the greatest of intentions. Some of you, if you're, if you're really a good person, then you'll remember Rudolph's shiny new year, the Christmas TV special. If you don't remember that, we will pray for your soul. Not the greatest of, of, of the Christmas specials of that time, but still pretty good. And as the new year, the baby new year is missing and Rudolph goes finding it, what, what you see is this baby that represents the new year is, wait for it, new, shining, bright, fresh, all of the things of the past year, all of the struggles of the past year, symbolically cut off at the end of the calendar. Now we know that's not how life actually really works. But don't we long for that? That separation from the junk so that we could get above that? That's why we celebrate the ball dropping. Who cares about the calendar itself? except for what it symbolizes in the newness of life, in a change, out with the old, in with the new. You see, it becomes really important to us to be able to cling to hope. But hope is really hard to find when we drift. When we get away from what we once knew to be true, what we once held dear, what we once prioritized. This happens in marriage all the time, doesn't it? We're so in love when we first get started. It's like everything is easy. Now it's not easy, but you think it's easy because you're so blind and stupid. And then we forget over time, if I may, how to be blind and stupid in the best possible sense. And now those things that he did that made you laugh make you angry. Those things that she did that were just so cute and adorable, you wonder, what if I marry the wrong person? Listen, drifting is normal. It doesn't mean it's good. It just means it's normal in that it happens to all of us whether we want it to or not. So what do we do about that? What's the remedy? That brings us to our core reality for today. Regular recalibration is the remedy for spiritual drift. Regular recalibration is the remedy for spiritual drift. Or if you prefer more alliteration, regular recalibration is the remedy for religious rot. 
It's what happens. We drift. Our, the outworking of our faith starts to decay. It starts to rot. How do we fix that? We have to recalibrate regularly. We'll kind of look at what that means as we go along here. You see, because we drift, because that's our natural tendency, we need sacred moments to reconnect us with reality, to recalibrate our hearts and minds. But understand that if our regular rituals become merely rote regurgitation, rather than real recalibration, the result is still religious rot. In other words, we can't just do the things, check the boxes, pray the words, take the elements of communion, get dunked in the water, show up for church. We can't just do the things, sleepwalking through it, and expect that it's somehow going to change us or somehow going to please and impress God. Now, some of you come from a background where that was pretty normal in your church experience. I hope and pray and trust that that is not your experience if you come to real life. Hopefully, you get offended regularly. Because if not, then I'm probably not telling the truth. Because this word is offensive. God steps on our toes. I get really tired of hearing the the silly, silly trope that God will never give us more than we can handle. Dude, God's in the business of giving you more than you can handle. That's the point. He's constantly making sure that you have more than you can handle so that you realize that you can't handle it. And you were never meant to handle it. You're supposed to hand it over to trust Him, to walk with Him. When we get caught up in religious ritual alone, mere rote regurgitation, nothing wrong with memory, nothing wrong with traditions, doing the same things over and over, these are good things when used properly, right? When I need to cut wood, I use the same tool over and over. When I need to unscrew a a screw, I use the same tool over and over. Why? Because it's the right one, and it works. I never use my hammer to try to cut a piece of wood. It will not work. So I don't look at the saw and say, man, I used that last time. I'm so bored of using this saw. It just doesn't mean anything to me anymore. I've got to change my thinking, not my tool. In the same way, religiously, And when I say religiously, I mean speaking from the outworking of our inner faith. When we're talking about the sacred ceremonies that God gives, or any of the regular, what we call ordinary means of grace, the the ongoing normal way that God displays and, and makes available to us His benefits, the benefits of redemption in Christ. When we do these things, it's not the tool that's the problem It's our way of thinking that is often the problem. So we have to make sure that we are thinking about this recalibration, these sacred moments, sacred ceremonies the right way. So let's consider these sacred moments in terms of seven, or seven and a half if you prefer, imperatives. Okay, so you can see them there. We will look at receive, remember, reflect, repent, and return. That's your half. And remove, 
finally rejoice and renew. As we work through these, I think you'll see these things in the text that that we just looked at in uh, chapter 23, really verses 1 through 28. We'll talk about it a little bit more in 1 Corinthians. We'll see even a little bit in Nehemiah and certainly in the psalm that Dennis read for us at the beginning. So, again, reminding us, regular recalibration is the remedy for spiritual drift. First, notice this. Receive God's gift of Himself. Receive God's gift of Himself. When I use the term recalibration, that implies having once been calibrated already. Right? We drift from that true standard where we were. Our true north doesn't change, but we veer off course. We set our sails, we set our rudder, but it's easy for things in our changing world and the sea that we sail in to kind of veer us off. So periodically we have to correct the course. We have to adjust the sails, adjust the rudder to get to the right bearing. Recalibration happens for people who belong to God. Sacred ceremony is for those who are in a covenant relationship with God. Notice in 2 Kings 23 that the nations are not included. This is not about the Gentiles out there. Let's bring them in. Let's, you know, hey, bring them all to the temple. Bring them all to church, and and we're going to get them right. If they do the right things, then, then they'll be better people. No, that's not what any of it is for. It's not what it's about. It's not about the nations in 2 Kings 23, nor do Gentiles and unbelievers remember God's goodness in the Psalms. It's not what it's about. There's much about the nations in the Psalms and in the prophets. Eventually, through their rebellion and God's judgment, bowing down to God. When they are in awe of God. Or when they get a picture of God through His people living as a reflection of Him. We see that a lot. But what we don't see is what we might call revival. Because you can't be revived unless you've been revived. Right? You can't be renewed in life if you don't have life. And so, sacred ceremony is for those who are already in a relationship with God. You will not become a Christian by being baptized. You will not become a Christian by taking the elements of the remembrance celebration. And you will not become a Christian by sitting in this church. All of these things are tools that serve a purpose, but they serve only the purpose that God intended them for. God has made relationship with Him available to sinners who will turn and trust Him. And only to sinners who will turn and trust Him. We don't get to be part of God's family. We don't get to heaven by wishful thinking. By the love of our family. Or because of a really nice eulogy at our funeral. That seems to be how that goes in our, in our society. Our, our concept of salvation, of soteriology, is salvation by death. 
basically if you died everybody talks about you being in a better place even though we know from scripture that most people are in a far worse place for all of eternity so we better get serious about what that means before any of the rest of this or at least most of the rest of this can have any significance and bear any weight in your life you have to first receive god's gift of himself you have to be part of his covenant people and he has made that available to you if this morning you realize that you're not in that kind of relationship with god maybe you've been christ adjacent but he hasn't been your whole life then don't wait it's not complicated it's not easy but it is simple jesus christ died to save sinners you're a sinner i'm a sinner that means he died to save us and when i recognize that when i acknowledge that i am a sinner that i am god's enemy i am by nature an object of his wrath that i am born in rebellion against him and i turn myself over to him and say lord i'm sorry i need you to save me because i can't save myself then he does every single person who wants jesus gets jesus it is as simple as that but not every person who claims jesus gets jesus there are lots of folks who wear the jersey but aren't on the team how does that happen that happens when i want god on my terms i want the benefits of god i want the benefits of redemption and salvation without the covenant requirements of it so when we see josiah reading the book to the people what is he doing he is reading to them from the book of the covenant chapter 22 calls it the book of the law it's the book of god it's it's referred to in a variety of different ways but it's very specifically called here the book of the covenant and what do they do in response to reading this they renew the covenant the covenant was still in effect but they weren't participating in it because these individuals had not received god, from god 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 had made himself available, he had offered himself, but they neglected the word, they ne neglected the ceremonies, as we'll see in a little while. They did not participate in the fellowship with God, even though they were part of God's chosen people, Israel. They were Abraham's blood descendants, but they were not his true spiritual descendants. We have to receive God's gift of Himself. I want to call you to that. If, if you're here as a guest, if you've been, maybe you've been here for 20 years, maybe you've been in church your whole life, but you're realizing, even as we speak, not because of anything I said, but because the Holy Spirit is knocking on your heart's door and opening your eyes, you know what? I've, I've said the right things. I've sung the right songs. I've been to Sunday school. I, I've done all these things. And I don't rob banks, and I don't you know, go on shooting sprees and things like that. But I know that my heart has been rebellious against God. 
I want to call my own shots. I think, I have thought that I am the God of my own life. And you know that it's wrong. And you know that you need a Savior. Then it's as simple as, Lord, I'm yours. Save me. And He will. If you wait to clean yourself up to come to Christ, you will never come because you will never be clean. However, if you come to Christ, He'll do the cleaning up. Just surrender. Just give up. And when you do that and receive God's gift of Himself, then all the rest of this is the tool to help you not drift or to reset your course when you begin to drift. So after we've received God's gift of Himself, the next step is to remember what the Lord has done. Remember what the Lord has done. When young Josiah becomes king, Israel has drifted far from God. God's book has been neglected and forgotten. His people are focused on everything else but him. As Josiah encountered the book personally in chapter 22, and then read it to the people in chapter 23, they remembered. What did they remember? They remembered what the Lord had done for them and all the requirements of the law they had neglected. They looked back over God's deliverance, over God bringing them to this promised land. And they were aware of how they had forgotten. They were beginning to realize as they remembered God just how far they had drifted off course. In the same way, our sacred celebrations must draw us back to the truth of God's Word. Let me say that again because I want to make sure that we get it. We, we can think easily of religious ceremonies as having something in themselves. We were speaking about this, uh, I think, at the men's group. I, can't, I think it was at the men's group. That, that prayer in itself does not feed the soul. It's not meant to. Prayer feeds on God's Word. We need to feed on God's Word. If our ceremonies are separated from God's Word, then we are still drifting. Okay, so as I promised I would read it again, in the same way, our sacred celebrations must draw us back to the truth of God's Word. They dare not add to or take away from God's revelation of Himself in the text of Scripture. If you have sacred ceremony or sacred moments that have some, some special experience, however you might term that, and it's not drawing you back into God's Word, then you should run from it. It's dangerous. It's no longer a drift. You've been caught in a current that is pulling you off course. They dare not add to or take away from God's revelation of Himself in the text of Scripture. These sacred moments, our, our ordinances, our sacred ceremonies, do not change reality. They simply realign us to the truth we once held tightly. How many of you were in a habit of going to church and Bible study and you felt strengthened? And then through whatever 
whatever circumstances, perhaps it was health, COVID, busyness, job, those habits were left behind. And you stopped going to church for a period of time. Do you notice how easy it is when that happens for your spirit to sink? I can still believe all the same things. I can still uh, know the truth of who God is. And yet, my strength wanes. I don't have the encouragement of my brothers and sisters around me. God gives us the church as one of those ordinary means of grace. We receive the benefits of being in Christ by being together with others who are in Christ. By gathering in the assembly to sit under the preaching of God's word, to sing the songs of the saints together. These are the ways that we strengthen one another. Man, I've just been struggling in my faith why have you been doing the things that help regularly recalibrate you i get it sometimes we can't help it we we know that we have friends right now that that would long to be with us but for various reasons they're shut into their homes and can't get out there are christians around the world longing to gather with other believers and they can't they're not able to. They're hungry for God's Word, but they don't have it. And they are just, just clinging to one page of Scripture to pour over it, to memorize it before it gets taken away from them in the land of persecution. Our sacred celebrations need to draw us back to God's Word, to recalibrate us, to get us back on course And what we find is when we are drawn back to the Word and drawn back to the proper course, we see that true north and we adjust our sails to receive the wind of God's Holy Spirit as we gather with one another, as we do the things that contribute to our strength, we get stronger. It makes sense, doesn't it? If I want energy, I need to eat right. As Hulk Hogan used to say, drink your milk, take your vitamins, say your prayers, right? We've got to to do all these things. These are normal things that normally produce a particular normal result. Why do we think spiritual things are different? Why Why do we keep looking for some magic fix? If I could just have the Holy Spirit. And if you're in Christ, you already have the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. He never leaves you. The question is, does He have you? Are you regularly setting your course, recalibrating to get your mind right? After they remember, through reading God's Word, they had to think about it. It drew them back. That brings us to our next imperative. Reflect on who God is and who we are. Reflect on who God is and who we are. The book of the law, the Bible, reveals God's nature, character, and will. It is God's revelation of Himself, clarifying His glory, His holiness, and His requirements. It shows who we are as His image bearers and the effects of sin on our whole being. When we see God's Word, we see God. 
when we see God, we begin to see ourselves more fully, more accurately, more rightly. And when we see ourselves as we really are, we understand this whole self-esteem garbage goes out the window. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Until I realize who I really am, I'm a traitor against the crown. I'm a rebel against God. I'm a human being whose sinful thinking, sinful desires, sin nature has utterly corrupted every part of who I am. It's not that I'm as bad as I could be. Lord knows I could be a whole lot worse. So could you. But there is no part of my being that's not affected by sin. My thinking is affected by sin. My capacity for reason is altered. It's corrupted. It's depraved. My ability to choose is bound over in my will to sin. I can't get away from that. Not on my own. I need God. I need that relationship that I can only have through Jesus Christ, through a regular fellowship with His Holy Spirit who lives in me if I'm in Christ. And as I am working through all of this understanding of who God is, and I begin to see it, I'm reading the book, I'm reminding myself, I'm remembering, it causes me to reflect, to think about it. God's Word shows who we are as His image bearers and the effects of sin on our whole being. When we rightly understand who God is and who we are, we see our desperate situation as sinful traitors against Him. When Isaiah encounters God in Isaiah 6, and he sees this thrice holy God as the the burning angels fly about the temple crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy! is the Lord God Almighty. His reaction is, Woe to me! I am undone. I'm a dead man. Because I'm dirty. I'm a man of unclean lips. And my eyes have beheld the living God. The glory of the righteous one. And who can stand? When we see God we remember Him through His Word, and we reflect on what that means, it changes us. It helps us by breaking us. We see our desperate situation. But we also see His love and His mercy. Over and over the psalmists say this, I remember Your love, Your steadfast love, O Lord reaches to the heavens. Remember His love. It endures forever. Remember His compassion. It never fails. When we remember God through His Word, not only do we see His holiness and our unholiness, we also see His love and mercy and His kindness to us in the midst of His wrath against us draws us to repentance, which is our next imperative. Repent of the sinful direction of our thinking 
and return to the Lord. We have to repent and return. Repent of the sinful direction of our thinking. In other words, regret it. Recognize this is the wrong path. And change the way I think. It's not just don't do certain things. It's stop loving those things. Stop wanting that. I need to change my mind so I see it differently. And if I do that, it changes my direction and I return to the Lord. Again, I can't return unless I have received Him and I'm in that covenant. But all of us can repent when God makes known to our minds the depravity that separates us from Him. Repentance is a change of thinking resulting in a change of direction. As we remember and reflect, God's people recognize the depravity <clears throat> excuse me, God's people recognize the depravity of the flesh. We begin to recognize and despise the areas of sin in our lives, whether caused by ignorance or willfulness. And I think we're all honest enough people to recognize that we're a combination of both. We have lots of sins of ignorance. We just didn't know that we were doing the wrong thing. We didn't realize that, we, that our hearts had drifted. But we also have those willful sins where the Holy Spirit's been tapping at us in our conscience saying, hey, that's not right. You claim to follow Christ, but you don't look like Christ. You think those words would come out of Jesus' mouth? Do you think Jesus would carry on that relationship? Watch that TV show? Read that book? Does that temper that you have, does that reflect Jesus? And he taps and he says, hey, I'm calling you. But we're so busy justifying our sin that we either don't hear him or we just slam the door on him. Repentance is a changing of our minds that changes our direction. And we, we, get, we start to see it, and then we start to hate it, and we recognize that even though we, we sin, and, and, and we sin foolishly, ignorantly, often rebelliously and stubbornly. But as Christ followers, we got to know, we got to recognize you will not be without sin in this life. However, you can never again be okay with it. The Holy Spirit living in you, if you're in Christ, will not let you be okay with it. The most miserable person on earth is the so-called carnal Christian. The one who has tasted of the beauty of Christ, but still wants to fool around with the world. You can't be married to Christ and keep the world as your side chick. That's not how this works. Friendship with the world is enmity toward God. We have to repent of the sinful direction of our thinking and return to the Lord. We recognize when we remember and reflect and repent 
We recognize the wickedness of the world and we can no longer embrace the things this world embraces. We see our sin. We hate our sin. And we turn, our, we turn from our sin back to the one our soul truly loves. Now listen. I want you to take this very seriously. So I'm going to say it slowly. If our remembering and reflecting does not result in repentance and returning, then it is rather certain and obvious that we have not received Him and entered into a saving relationship. If you can contemplate God's Word and not feel convicted, condemned, overwhelmed, and want to change and hate your sin and want to have that close fellowship with Him, then you have every reason to think that you are not saved. And you need to repent. Not to return, but to turn. To come to Him. Say, Lord, I can't be God. And I have been in rebellion against You. But if you are in Christ, if you have received Him, His Holy Spirit dwells in you. He never leaves you. And He will not tolerate a rival. Your sin will cause a terrible taste in your mouth. When we remember and reflect, we repent and return. But it's not enough to say it. It's not enough to have an emotional experience in church, to hear a sermon or to read a devotion or to have a, a, a Christmas celebration that, that you know, tugs at our heartstrings. And we shed tears in our prayers and we shed tears in our songs. And we cry out. Listen, crying out is not enough. It needs to be walked out. In action, notice our next imperative. Remove the instruments of sin. Remove the instruments of sin. Notice what happens in in Second uh, Kings twenty three. Notice what jo- Josiah does. Um, after the section that we read, pick up with verse four. The king ordered Hilkiah, the high priest, the the priests next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. This is what the people of God were doing in God's house, worshiping all these other things, created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Continuing, he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. He took away, I'm sorry, he did away with the pagan priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense on the high places of the towns of Judah and on those around Jerusalem, those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and moons, to the constellations and to all the starry hosts. He took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and he burned it there. He ground it to powder and scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. He also tore down the quarters of the male, male shrine prostitutes which were in the temple of the Lord and where women 
did weaving for Asherah. I'll stop there, but it continues. In fact, that's the majority of this passage. It's the majority of this, of this narrative here is the action taken to remove and destroy the instruments of sin from among them, including the pagan, pagan voices of worldly wisdom after they take the, the uh, Passover together. It points out that he also removed the mediums and spiritists. Those who said things that sounded like wisdom, but they were not of God. We listen to a lot of voices that claim to be helpful, but it's wisdom that's not of God. Maybe we don't consult mediums and spiritists, although many do in our day, and we know that. Tarot cards, psychics. We get involved with all sorts of different alternate spiritualities. All of which is serving demons. All of it. Yes, that includes the the spirituality of yoga and things like that as well. If you're not sure about that, come talk to me and we'll sort it out. We have to take strong action. Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole of you to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, same thing. His point is not mutilation of the body. His point is take extreme action to remove the instruments of sin. That's what we see here in 2 Kings. What does that look like in our world? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't look like. If you are struggling with alcohol, you know what, I'm going to give this up for, you know, for whatever purpose, but, but let's say it's for spiritual purpose. I'm going to turn away from this. I'm not going to do it because I don't want, it, I don't want to put that in my body. But you keep it in your cabinet. You haven't removed the instrument that took you there. If you're an alcoholic and you keep the alcohol in your fridge, then you're going to end up eventually struggling there. If you struggle with lust and you've made a covenant with your eyes not to look upon a woman lustfully, but you continue to dally around movies and TV shows that have those scenes, you know the one. Or you drive through that part of town where the strip club is. And you don't go in, but you let it sit in your mind. Or you know that you should not be in a a relationship that you're in, but you keep on spending time hanging out with that person. Or you want to commit yourself to God's Word and to the truth, but you keep listening to that podcast or that author who's saying spiritual-sounding, worldly things, then you have not removed the instruments of sin. And if you have not removed the instruments of sin, then you haven't repented. You haven't changed the way you think. This removing action is the fruit of repentance. When John the Baptist said to the, the crowd and the Pharisees specifically, he said, warned you brood of vipers to flee from the coming wrath 
What was his charge to them? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. They wanted to come get in on the sacred ceremony. They wanted to be baptized by John, or at least to be around the crowd to come and see it. They wanted to be a part of the moment. And John's like, listen, this this baptism is about repentance. It's about not living for yourself, but living for God. Produce fruit. Walk it out. Live what you say you believe. This is burning the ships so that there's no going back to the old life. So I ask you, as I've had to ask myself, what instruments of sin do you personally need to remove from your life? It's not a rhetorical question. You need to examine this in your own life. What things am I keeping around? Baby dragons. I want to slay the big dragons of sin, but, you know, this baby dragon's not so bad. It's kind of cute. I could keep this dragon around, as long as it's small and cuddly. But the problem with baby dragons is they always grow up, and they consume us. And as long as I love that dragon... As long as the ships are still there for me to leave the island and go back. I haven't repented. I haven't changed my thinking. And I've left the door open. Can't get married and keep your little black book of numbers either. So what do you need to remove personally from your own life? What ships do you need to burn? What sin triggers do you need to destroy? What voices or influences or friends do you need to remove from your life? Because they lead you into sin. They cause you to drift. Remove the instruments of sin. Notice also in verse 21, our next imperative. Rejoice in the great mercy of God in Christ. Rejoice in the great mercy of God in Christ. Now, in verse 21 of 2 Kings 23, what happens is after all of these things that they've done, Josiah calls them to sacred ceremony, to a celebration. 21 says this, The king gave this order to all the people, Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. Now notice, before we go on to verse 22, because you want to see that, notice that they... The the word here is celebrate. Now there is the the general sense that we talk about celebrating communion and so on, but you can't get away from the core of what it means to celebrate. There is a rejoicing. When the people in Exodus were celebrating the Passover, they stopped so that they could contemplate what they were doing. They were fleeing, but they weren't really fleeing God was delivering them. They ate it in haste as the Lord's Passover. But as they did it, there was a celebration. They feast together. When we feast together, those of you who have been with us for our Passover Seder celebration in the, in the springtime, which is a specifically messianic picture of it, this Passover that they're celebrating is pointing forward to Christ, to the deliverance that we would all have in Him from sin. 
Jesus makes that connection in the Gospels when he says, this is now my body, this is now my blood. As often as you eat it, talking about this Passover, do it in remembrance of me. That's why we call it the remembrance celebration. We remember what Jesus did and we celebrate what that means for us. So he has them celebrate this Passover, this time of remembering and rejoicing. But notice, this is part of the problem that they've had. Verse 22, not since the days of the judges who led Israel. Hundreds of years now. You're talking about many kings have passed. You're on the back end of the kingdom of Israel. The judges are on the front end before there was a king. Not since the days of the judges who led Israel, nor throughout the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. So there is a rejoicing that comes with this as we contemplate the great mercy of God given to us in Christ, them looking forward, us looking back to the cross and looking forward to His return. After all that they did, they celebrated the Passover, a time of remembrance and also rejoicing over what God had done in the past as He redeemed and delivered His people. When God's people ponder God's goodness, we rejoice with exceedingly great joy. That's why we have such great celebrations at Christmas, even though it's easy for us to forget. We need to recalibrate our Christmas celebrations, don't we? When the angels declare peace on earth, right? Goodwill toward men. There's a peace and a joy that we sing about as we contemplate God's goodness. When we contemplate His greatness, His bigness, His majesty, when we contemplate God's greatness, the natural result is fear. Because God is the biggest. That's the natural result. When I see Him as He is, I don't have to muster up some reverence for Him. I'm awed. I am overwhelmed with fear as a natural result of that. But when we contemplate His goodness, His greatness is His bigness, when we contemplate His goodness, His love and mercy and grace, the natural result is overwhelming, overflowing joy. We see it in all of God's people throughout the Bible, whether Abraham or Moses or David or the psalmists or the prophets or the Apostle Paul. A proper and robust theology leads to a joyful, vociferous doxology. In other words, when we, when we think rightly about the Lord, we get so excited that we can't help exploding with praise. Paul does that all the time. He, he goes through the, the first few chapters of Ephesians, the first three chapters, talking about our position in Christ and what that means. And he just, in the middle of his letter, he just kind of like, explodes now not to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine to him be glory in the church and in christ jesus forever and ever that's the result of knowing god when you know god and you know who he is and you know who you are and you recognize his mercy and you take hold of that you receive his gift of himself and you remind yourself you actively participate in remembering who He is, according to His Word, not according to your feelings, and you remove the junk, the obstacles to fellowship 
which are the instruments of sin, the triggers for your sin, you do whatever it takes to get that out of your life. Rejoicing is the natural result. And yet at the same time, rejoicing is a choice. That's why we're commanded to rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice. We're commanded to delight in the Lord and He'll give us the desires of our hearts because there is an intentional action to it to choose to remember. And then that leads to our rejoicing. And when we see Him and we love Him and we rejoice, that leads to our final imperative to renew. Renew the covenant of our hearts and minds. Renew the covenant of our hearts and minds. In 2 Kings 23, the result of reading and remembering God's Word and His wonderful deeds was a renewing of the covenant. We saw this in the first part that we read. Look at verses 3 and 4. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep His commands, regulations, and decrees with all His heart and all His soul thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. And that's when the king, in verse 4, ordered Hilkiah the high priest, the priests next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. And he burned them. And he took the ashes to Bethel. The result of reading and remembering God's Word and His wonderful deeds was a renewing of the covenant. Sacred moments or ceremonies don't change what is true. A ceremony, a ceremony doesn't make a covenant. Right? We know lots of people who get married, stand before people, and speak vows that their hearts never embrace. They were never married in their hearts from day one. They might have been legally married, but they were bound to fall apart because they didn't take the vows seriously. And saying it doesn't change reality. Sacred moments or realities don't change what is true. They don't magically make us better or more holy. You're not getting any points with God that's going to get you closer to heaven by, by doing these things. Rather, they are an opportunity to remember what is true and real and to renew our vision, direction, and commitment. That's what they've always been. That's what they were in the Old Testament. No one was ever saved by the sacrifices. It was the sacrifices that drew their attention to God. When they acted in faith, when they offered the sacrifices in faith, God acted in redemption and forgiveness. It was all pointing forward to Christ. But the forgiveness was God, not the ritual. They're an opportunity to remember what is true and real and to renew our vision, direction, and commitment. It's a bit like the renewal of marriage vows that some folks do. It's not a new thing. You're already married. It's not that you're changing that. It's a return to the original thing that we may have drifted from along the way. It's a reminder a recalibration. God gives us sacred celebrations as ordinary means of grace to recalibrate our hearts to reality. Again, our 
regular recalibration is the remedy for spiritual drift. This is the reason we have the ordinances of baptism and the remembrance celebration. This is the reason we gather every Sunday morning. This Lord's Day gathering is an Easter celebration every Sunday to remind us, to refocus, to gather strength from one another. Truth is we drift without trying because we're sailing in a sea of sinfulness as we seek to navigate this life. The wind and waves of the world all around us can easily take us off course without us even noticing. Sacred ceremonies, sacred moments are God's gift for us to use purposefully, intentionally, to reconnect us to the truth we know but easily forget. If we're not careful, we can abuse this gift and turn it into merely rote regurgitation. But when we use our moments and ceremonies to really remember what the Lord has done for, for us uh, and, and to renew our covenant commitment and fellowship with Him, the result is a powerful, joyful, victorious life in which we reflect the reality of Christ every day through relationships that flow from His life in us and draw others into relationship with Him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you have, you have given us gifts that we abuse, that we neglect. Just as we see the, the children of Israel in Josiah's day neglecting your word, neglecting the ceremonies that are to remind them and recalibrate them and, and keep them on course, it's easy for us to do that too. We live in a world where everything seems stacked against us. The things that matter most seem foreign. And the things that break your heart, the knife in your back seems normal. We're told all the time that we need to update our thinking, that your word is outdated that the morality of the church is irrelevant, even offensive. Lord, we no longer find ourselves in a world that's apathetic toward your truth, but a world which has been the case through most all of history and underneath has always been the case, a world that is aggressively hostile toward you and your people. We see it increasing. We know from your word that it's bound to increase. Father, help us to respond by reflecting the reality of Christ, the love, the beauty, the mercy, and at the same time, your perfect standard. Not as if we are better than anybody. But as those who have been saved by your mercy, your grace, your undeserved favor, and who are grateful and want to share that with everyone.
Lord, make us those people. And as we celebrate this sacred ceremony today, Lord, I pray that you would capture our hearts, cause us to remember and to renew. We pray this in Jesus' name.